don't plan your career 20 years out because stuff is going to happen, you know, along the way that's going to change it. And, and so do the best job where you are and think ahead to maybe the next thing you want to do. Full stop. You know, just do a good job. That was retired ambassador Greg Engel. And welcome to Tetuat with Benjamin Morse. Welcome back, everybody, as we reach a fun milestone on the Tetuat with Benjamin Morris podcast. This is episode number 10, uh, which doesn't really mean a lot, but is also pretty cool to hit the double digits. And I couldn't think of anyone better for this episode than retired ambassador Gregory W. Engel. Uh, Greg and I first met in Ethiopia in 2012 when he became the Peace Corps country director while I was serving there as a volunteer. And Having served as a Peace Corps volunteer himself in South Korea in the early 1980s, this shift into uh, an assignment uh, as the country director really brought his international career full circle in many ways, which, of course, is a theme that we will explore throughout this conversation. In this episode, we dive deep into Greg's life and career as a foreign service officer, which spans decades and is chock full of breathtaking stories of meetings with presidents and even a dinner with Nelson Mandela. Greg provides guru-level advice for those interested in joining the Foreign Service or the Peace Corps or just interested in exploration abroad, and he really dives into the details and the minutiae here. So be sure to pull out your notebooks, uh, take some notes during that section. He really speaks with a unique conviction that will have you sitting on the edge of your seat. And he continues throughout the conversation to offer layers of sage-like wisdom that will surely help you chart your path into travel, exploration, and who knows, potentially a career in the Foreign Service. As I mentioned, Greg is a retired Foreign Service officer whose diplomatic career included assignments in Pakistan, Germany, Ethiopia, of course, Cyprus, Malawi, South Africa, Iraq, Washington, and Togo, where he was the U.S. ambassador. That is such a mouthful, uh, but I think it really speaks to the breadth and depth of his experience. And he won a few awards along the way. Uh, which we will talk about uh, a little bit as well. And Greg spent, you know, the last two years of his foreign service uh, as a diplomat in residence at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, which is a super prestigious position. It's really amazing for him to be able to transition into academia with a background in the foreign service and be able to do it with uh, such grace and and really such deep experience. Uh, definitely jealous of the students that got to sit in his classroom and learn uh, directly from this man. And one thing I really want to double click on for this particular conversation is he is a musician. Greg is an amazing 
singer and songwriter. And we are actually fortunate enough during this episode uh, to be treated to a live musical performance right in the middle of the conversation. Greg uh, plays his song, A Simple Prayer, from his 2010 debut album, Take It Personally. And this song, it means so much to me, having heard it when I was living in Ethiopia. Uh, but then going back and, and seeing some of the YouTube videos that he's put together using this song, uh, hearing this performance uh, while I was talking to him in the middle of our conversation was a transcendent experience for me. And I'm really excited to share that with all of you directly. So that is such a treat. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to everyone getting to that part in the conversation. Uh, and it's really through music that he's really uh, doubled down on his retirement and uh, really stepped into that kind of authentic next chapter of his life. He has performed and conducted songwriting workshops across the world in countries like Swaziland, Lesotho, uh, Ivory Coast, Djibouti, Eritrea. Uh, this is all part of the U.S. Uh, Department of State's Arts Envoy program, which is pretty awesome. He was able to continue and extend his service in that manner. And Greg is just such a unique person and has been such an ardent mentor and supporter of myself over the past couple years. And uh, we've really grown uh, to, to get to know each other pretty well. And I just feel super humbled and honored to uh, open it up and turn it over to all of you to really dive into a little bit more about uh, who Greg is and what he stands for. So with that, I'm going to leave you with just a little treat from that live performance he did. You'll have to listen all the way through to get the entire thing. All right. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with retired ambassador Greg Engel. Oh, my children, Lendony. Sit right down next to me here It's not a story I would share It's just this, a simple prayer To you I pray with all my soul A joyful life that you grow old But to this there's one thing more Leave this place better than before Welcome, Ambassador Greg Ingle, to the show. It is a true honor to have you here today. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because over the past couple of weeks, uh, you've become one of the main musicians that both my wife, Mary, and I have been listening to <laughs> while we're going on runs and cooking. And uh, we just love your album, Take It Personally. Like it's, it's really great. We've really been enjoying it. That I'm always glad to hear. <laughs> Tell your friends. Well, uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the purpose of, of this conversation, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, so really, like, from the outset, I just want to thank you for being such an inspiration and mentor for me over the years. And, you know, since we met in Peace Corps uh, in Ethiopia back in 2012, when you were the country director and I was a volunteer, uh, I may not have told you this part, uh, but one of the reasons that I pursued ultimately getting a master of public policy was really because of you. And not just because you supported my application to get into 
uh, the graduate school, but because you embody the the dedication, the diplomacy, the service that I think really has the power to inspire and you really capture young people's imagination in a way that I think uh, really can only come from like really genuine uh, and and talented role models. So again, super grateful to have been able to connect with you in Ethiopia and uh, I'm even more thrilled uh, here in this medium to be able to unpack your story uh, for everyone else to hear. Well, it's an honor uh, for me to be able to to inspire you, to give you guidance, to be able to give you recommendations and things that that can be useful to you as you get into this kind of career. And the reason I say that is because I wouldn't trade my international career for any other pursuit or type of career. It was like so exciting and so fulfilling and really unbelievable uh, that I had this opportunity. So uh, if I see talented people, then it's really an honor to be able to help them along. Yeah, and I imagine you've seen uh, droves of talented people in your in your career. Fortunately, yes. <laughs> Very That's few awesome. who didn't reach that level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, so like just looking at your background, we have a tremendous amount to explore in this conversation, and I definitely want to get into it. Um, I've done a little bit of a retrospective on your life, and I'm just simply floored with everything you've been able to accomplish and everything that you're still achieving. Like, I'm, I'm just amazed by, by everything you've been able to do. Well, knowing you and knowing how enthusiastic and creative you were in Ethiopia with your project and, and your community, uh, I know that in 20 years, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, you're going to look back, you're going to be amazed. Like, wow, I accomplished all of that. You know, I did this thing and I don't spend a lot of time patting myself on the back. Uh, but when I do look at it, it's more just the structure. It's like, whoa, I got to go here, 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 and have some incredibly interesting experiences. And I know that you and Mary will be able to say exactly the same. <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. I, you know, I already feel that way uh, for for my own experiences. You know, you're grateful for every every opportunity you have to grow and to kind of step into new things and you know, explore new places if, if travel, uh, you know, is, is part of your path. And, you know, as I, I look at you, like you've had such an illustrious career in the U.S. Foreign Service, and you ultimately became the ambassador of Togo, which uh, I want to get into in just a little bit. And I know you've also spent time in academia uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. You served in the Peace Corps in uh, Korea and, you know, later boomeranged right on back uh, to the Peace Corps when you became country director in Ethiopia. Um, and then really like you've you've been able to, you know, develop into this amazing musician and you've been able to kind of find this this amazing kind of second breath uh, on top of raising a family and being what actually I think is the ultimate title uh, that you've earned across your life, which is uh, a grandfather, which is Absolutely. super fantastic. My title is Pop. <laughs> Pop. Yeah. I was going to ask you, that's, that's great. That's a good one. It is, it's the best gig ever, really is. 
That's a great gig. It's good. It's probably like, yeah, the most rewarding, maybe at times some of the more challenging. Actually, I feel like as a parent, that was probably where it was like the challenging part. And then now as a, a grandparent, as a pop, you're like, you get all the benefits, but you don't have to do all the work of being a parent. <laughs> yeah. The unique thing, you know, we're not here to talk about parenting or grandparenting, but um, the interesting thing about being a grandparent is, you know, there are different boundaries than there were when you were a parent and there are different responsibilities and you have to give your child the opportunity to raise their own child the way they see fit, which might be different than you raised your children. So it's kind of understanding, hopefully sooner rather than later, that that there's some lines that you really can't cross. And so your your responsibilities or your ability to uh, to guide uh, are different. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you provided me with a fantastic segue there because I'd, I'd like to go, go back to actually when you were a kid, um, learn a little bit more about your upbringing. And, you know, we were talking the other day and something really jumped out at me. You said that, you never lived in a place longer than four years your entire life. And, you know, that might be a good spot to dive in. Can you tell us about how you were uh, ostensibly born into a traveling lifestyle? I was born (laughs) into foreign service. My dad was in the Air Force and I was born in Wiesbaden, Germany, where there's a large, uh, or was a large concentration of U.S. uh, Air Force personnel. And after a year... We moved to uh, Colorado, and then we had a succession of my dad's assignments at Colorado or uh, Denver, Fairbanks, Alaska, Colorado Springs, and back to Germany for three years, back to Colorado, New Jersey, da da da. And the result of that was, as you said, I hadn't until a couple of years ago. I had never lived anywhere longer than four years in my whole life. At one point, I calculated that from fourth grade through ninth grade, every year I was in a different school, every year. So, you know, we were moving, moving, moving. Because of my experience uh, as a 10 to 13-year-old in Germany when we went back, that was so transformative because... I just couldn't believe what it was like to to live in Germany in the in the mid '60s, and I had a social studies teacher at school who had just come out of Peace Corps service, two years in Thailand and one year in India, and wow. he had his slides and he showed us these slides and I said, "That's it. I mean, that's just it. That's what I'm going to do," and that's what How I. How old were you then? I uh, would have been twelve. That was wow. seventh grade, yeah. And I mean, it just, you know, my whole life was kind of defined for me after that. That's amazing. I, you know, I, I don't know a lot of the volunteers uh, in my group that knew that they were going to join Peace Corps at age 12. I think there are definitely some of them, uh, but that's that's really fantastic. And, you know, I guess you never really knew a life without travel, um, but I imagine your relationship with travel probably had to evolve and like, I'm sure that it was hard to like leave your friends and go and, ex- you know, go to a new place and grow. Like, have you always been like this open and excited about it or has it been an evolution for you? No, I think it was always very open to it. It was, 
first it was all I knew. So, uh, and I did leave good friends uh, a few times when we did live in some place for two, three, four years. You'd leave good friends, but I was always looking forward to the next place, uh, not jumping ahead and you know neglecting to enjoy or take advantage of where I was. But I was always looking right. looking forward to the next uh, adventure. So it was almost more like a drug to be honest yeah. in its own strange way. And a lot of people who knew me when I retired and we said, Hey, Austin is where we're retiring. You're like, nah, you're not retired. You know, you're, you're <laughs> not going to be able to stay in one place for that long. And I'm, I mean, I did take out two years to go back to Ethiopia. I'm happy as a clam. I don't want to move anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the travel bug is real. And, you know, I, I grew up, you know, I was privileged enough to be able to travel internationally since I was three years old. And I did a lot of trips down to the Caribbean, uh, which is where I live now. Um, surprisingly, I would never have guessed that one. Um, but, you know, I, I've said a few times on this podcast that the more you travel, the more you realize how much you haven't traveled, and how much you want to just continue to explore the world. And I know that like, for me, once I, I studied abroad in Australia, that was that was really where I hit my streak. And it was like I actually had five birthdays in a row that were outside of the United States uh, starting at age 19. And it just kind of went went through that way. And like it was it was always like trying to be really present and enjoy where you're at. Um, but always, always kind of looking forward to the next thing and, and just acknowledging that you really have to live in the present but there's just so much out there and it's just like, you know, the, the opportunity of, for growth that traveling affords each of us is vast. It's unlimited. Right. And I think that that's, that's part of what I get so connected to is that opportunity to go and just continue to learn more about myself along with the, the places that I was able to travel to. Right. Well, and I think there's a big advantage in living in a place rather than just visiting. I mean, I, I love to visit places and I'm really anxious to get over to Ireland again, but living in a place and, you know, being immersed in the culture and having a, having longer to kind of understand it and to make friends and understand it through them makes all the difference in the world to me. When I look back, we've had some fantastic vacations, but I don't really think much about the vacations. I think about the places I've lived and the people we've known what I've learned about them, and then how I apply that back to my own existence and what my values are and all of that. So I really think to be able to live and to work overseas is, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You, you come to know the place uh, many, many layers deep. And, you know, Mary and I have been here now on the island of St. Martin for uh, just over three months. And like our first week here felt very much like a vacation. And then after that, like, you know, you just start learning more and more and it, be it becomes like a home very quickly. Right. And those those layers of kind of the evolution, they're really apparent when somebody comes and visits you and uh, you see the types of things that they're interested in. And again, no, at no fault of their own, they're coming as a, a tourist and you've already kind of gotten all that stuff out of the way. You've learned a lot about. Um, kind of your surroundings and the culture and, and the spots to go eat and where the best uh, place to go see stingrays is or whatever your thing is. 
And now that that's out of the way, you can start diving deeper and deeper and deeper and, and just learning more about what's around you. Right. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's such a powerful, powerful experience. I remember when we were together uh, in Ethiopia that that's a country with extreme needs and extreme poverty. And you know the people and you know what they're going through. And I'd know that. And then I'd get on Facebook, which is probably a huge mistake anyway. And and you'd see all these, oh, you know, I broke the egg yolks on my fried eggs this morning. The day's going to be awful. You know, I mean, like right. ridiculous stuff. And was, I know 90 million people who'd love those eggs, you know, just and and you just sort of see the differences and the different values uh it could be really shocking and the materialism of the united states whenever we'd go back because we spent most of our years in developing countries poor countries and then you'd go back to the united states and you'd see the materialism you'd see the waste you'd see when we came out of korea korea is a country that really venerates older people. It's older family members, older people, lots of respect taken care of. And we happened to move into an apartment in Denver that was right across the street from, for lack of a better term, a retirement home. And we would see, you know, you'd look across the street and you'd see this older woman coming out of the retirement home with well, I assume to be her children, you know, right. younger, but still not young. And they get in their car and she'd be standing there and she'd be waving to them as they drove off. It almost broke my heart. You know, after Korea, I just like it almost broke my heart. I thought, God almighty, you know, they'd never do this in Korea. And I understand why. Um, so, you know, it changes you. It's fun to be there and all that, but it changes you in fundamental ways, too. Yeah, absolutely. So you served in the Peace Corps in Korea, uh, and and my understanding is you were the last group of volunteers in yeah. the country. Is that right? Yeah, we were the last. The training groups were called K, so K one through we were K fifty, and there was a K fifty one that came a few months after us, just the yeah. way say a group seven would have a group eight in yeah. Ethiopia within a few months, and we were the last. I mean, we our service was cut in half basically after a year and they said we're closing the thing down yeah yeah that's yeah i mean you you obviously had that experience uh you know growing up traveling so that wasn't your first your first time abroad um but what was what was your decision it sounds like obviously it started early but what was that process for you to get to actually go and join the peace corps um I, well, I went to, I've got to figure this out. I think I went to six schools to get my bachelor's and I just pick up credits here and there and I graduated and then I went right into a master of public administration program at the University of Colorado and at that point thought I would get into academia as a career, earn a PhD and a and so I headed up to the University of Wisconsin in Madison into a PhD mm-hmm. program, realized that I, my interest was developing countries, specifically the Indian subcontinent. Um, I'd never lived in a developing country. 
And so it didn't seem real. It seemed like there was some experience that I needed. And I had a master's in public administration, but I'd never really worked in an organization sort of worthy of that kind of administration, if you will. So I decided to leave and to get those experiences. And that's when uh, my wife and I decided we joined the Peace Corps. So, and Peace Corps being Peace Corps, uh, we went to the recruitment office, we filled out all the forms, and a couple months later they said, we have a project in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and would you like to join that in you know February? And we said, yeah, sure. So then we got out books on Zaire and blah, blah, blah. We were looking forward to learning French. And two weeks before we were supposed to leave, the Peace Corps calls and said, we're not going to do that project. How would you like a project in Korea? And we're like, whoa. Sounds Korea. like something the Peace Corps would do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, wow, well, you know, you get whiplash, cultural whiplash. Uh, and so we did We did uh, agree to go to Korea, and it was, it was a fascinating experience. So it's a little bit of, even though I knew back in seventh grade that the international uh, career path was something I wanted to pursue. And I knew from his uh, stories and photos of India and Thailand that I really wanted to work in development somehow. I didn't really have a, a bead, you know, a narrow focus on, okay, I'm going to get into Peace Corps then. I kind of stumbled, it was there, and I kind of stumbled into it uh, when the time was right. Sure. So that's amazing. And, you know, after, after you did that, uh, you shifted into the foreign service almost right away, right? What was, what was that process like? Can you talk us through that trajectory a little bit? Yes. I took the, I mean, that was another logical extension of a desire to have an international career. And I took the written foreign service test in December, before I went into the Peace Corps, passed that, got invited to the orals, which is like an eight-hour, an all-day thing, multiple exercises, and took that three days before reporting to staging in California for the Peace Corps. Went off, was half here, or halfway through training, and I got a big packet from the State Department saying, hey, you passed your orals, you know, now fill out, you know, these 50,000 forms and <laughs> security clearance, medical clearance, which I did. We just had one little manual typewriter at the health center where I worked and, you know, one, one manual typewriter and about 10 bottles of whiteout. Uh, <laughs> um, so I sent those in and I didn't know where that thing stood more or less from the time I was in Peace Corps. And then when the the program closed and we went back to Denver and I called the foreign service and they said, yeah, you, you know, you're, they're high on the roster. You go into a roster, you pass your medicals, yeah. you pass your security, and then you go into this roster. And yeah. my security was taking forever. And they said, no, we've got a priority on it, but you have 33 addresses. <laughs> I really <laughs> did. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, so it took a while. Uh, and How much white did you through, use to get that form filled out? <laughs> oh man, thank 
got from my mother. She had saved all those addresses. Uh, I've still got that list. It's like three pages long. But um, I, I passed both of those, and I was sitting at breakfast one morning in Denver early, and I get a call, and it's from the Foreign Service, the Foreign Service Institute or their, their HR office, and said, Would, you know, we want to offer you a place in this next class uh, that starts on November 4th, and would you, you know, would you like to join the Foreign Service? I was like, Mike, yeah, let me think about it for, <laughs> for about two seconds. I said, yeah, yeah, of course, oh, my God. You know, my wife's sitting right across from me. Yeah. And so I'm asking about, okay, you know, I got to be there, da, da, da. How are we going to get our stuff there, blah, blah, blah. And the woman says, well, don't you want to know what we're going to pay you? <laughs> I'm like, huh? Oh, pay me. Yeah, yeah, sure. What is what is that? And I had a master's degree and I had my Peace Corps service. So it notched me up a level. They said, well, with your education and experience, we're going to pay you $19,600. This was 1981. Yep. And I covered the phone and looked at my wife and said, you're not going to believe what they're going to pay me because it wasn't even much back then, but coming out of the yeah, Peace Corps, yeah. my gosh, you know, so it seemed like a fortune. But right. yeah, <laughs> and then relative, I, right? you know, I showed up for my orientation class and went through that, went through training, took Urdu, and uh, reported to my first uh, assignment in Pakistan. It's amazing. Yeah. And like that, that story, that process just sounds so like similar to the, the Peace Corps process as well. Just not, not necessarily the exam side. Um, obviously that, that is quite different, but just the, the kind of not knowing where you're going, like kind of haphazardly agreeing over the phone that you're going to do it before you really have any real details in front of you. Um, I love everything about that. Like that's, that's very cool. What was so crazy, I mean, it was really what I wanted to do. And it was so crazy because I had been applying for other jobs in Denver because the Foreign Service is so competitive. You've got about a one in 200 chance of getting in uh, based on applicants. Um, and I had applied for three other jobs uh, up to that point. And this is a true story. I got that call at seven. At nine o'clock, I got a call from the state of Colorado for two of the other positions, offered me either one. And at 10 o'clock, I got a call from the international office, at the University of Colorado at Boulder, offering me an advisor position. And of course, I turned them all three down. <laughs> and after I turned them down, I had this uneasy feeling and I called the State Department back again and said, did you call me at seven this morning? Are you really I just want to make sure this? that this I is a real make call. Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of that's fun. wild. What a day. Wow. It's, it's not every day, day you get yeah. four job offers. <laughs> I had a amazing. bottle of beer that night. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. You earned it. I did. Um, so going to the Foreign Service, can you just talk me through your trajectory a little bit? I know that you've, you, know, you went to a lot of different places. You served in a lot of different positions. Uh, but can you talk us through that a little bit? Sure. I joined the Foreign Service from the administration, the administrative officer roster. So at that time, and I think it's still this way today, 
they had four, at that time it was four, they called them cones, tracks. And you chose one sort of early in the application process. And because of my Master of Public Administration, I thought, well, I'm going to choose the administrative cone uh, because that maybe makes more sense. And uh, the other cones were political officer, economic officer, and um, consular officer. And then since then, they've added public diplomacy uh, because the State Department absorbed the uh, U.S. Information Agency. And so I went in as an administrative officer. I took the six-week orientation course with everybody else coming in, which was about 30 people in the different cones. I got an assignment to Pakistan in sort of a dual cone position, one-year consular, one-year administrative. They trained me for... Um, 10 weeks in Urdu and sort of on my own, I took Hindi at the site because they're very similar and trained me in administrative work, trained me in consular work and shipped me off. And so I was there for two years, first year consular, second year administrative, then was assigned to uh, the consulate general in Munich, wonderful assignment uh, as, as a, uh, a general services officer, which was an administrative role, back to Washington, and then over to Ethiopia the first time, 1988 to 90, as the management officer for the whole post. So that was still in an administrative role. Uh, from there to Cyprus as an admin officer. And then I had an opportunity to transfer to Lilongwe, Malawi, as the deputy chief of mission, which is like the deputy to the ambassador, which is not an administrative position. Anyone from any cone could take that position. There was a big benefit or opportunity for me. So I took that and stayed there for three years. And it was, it was an amazing three years. It was a wonderful experience. And then, then uh, back to Washington, and to something called the Senior Seminar. It was like a year-long seminar. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then to Johannesburg as Consul General, again, in a non-administrative role, in a multi-track right. role, uh, back to Washington, and then out to Togo as Ambassador, another multi-track role, and then over to Baghdad for a year as the management officer for that post, which is like the biggest post in not in American history, basically it was humongous. Uh, and I was a management officer for that. And then came to the University of Texas as a diplomat in residence. So even though you're originally slotted into a particular track, you have opportunities along the way to take positions outside of that track right. or multi-track types of positions. And you know, so it's really exciting. I mean, you, you just all sorts of things open up. But I remember in the orientation program very early on, people were asked to introduce themselves and say a little bit about themselves and say, what did they want to accomplish in the Foreign Service? Where yeah. did they want to go with that? And out of 30 people, about five of them said, well, I'm going to be an ambassador, which I thought was 
very curious, you know, just just odd. Well, I just thought that was odd, thinking that far ahead. But um, right. I never thought that way. But, you know, I, I want to go to Pakistan to do my best job. And when I'm in Pakistan, you know, and I've got about a year before my next job, I want to try to find a challenging next job. So I yep. tell my students, I said, you know, don't, don't plan your career 20 years out because stuff is going to happen you know, along the way that's going to change it. And and so do the best job where you are and think ahead to maybe the next thing you want to do. Full stop, you know, just do a good job. And uh, I think that served me well through my career. And I constantly had transfers, uh, reassignments that involved more responsibility. The thing I loved about the Foreign Service was from the from the very first day that I reported to Pakistan, I had a lot of opportunity to take initiative and to take responsibility. If you had a good idea, you went in, you said, you know, I think we could do this better this way. And 95% of the time, your boss or the more senior people at Post would say, that's a good idea, run with it. Let us know how it's going. And so you did have an opportunity for more uh, responsibility uh, if you were creative and energetic. And I think that's important. Yeah, that's that's an amazing overview. And, and it sounds like your kind of wayfinding approach, opening up your aperture a little bit, making sure that you're kind of taking stock of each little step that you're taking rather than trying to focus on that, that summit because uh, you might want to change mountains along the way. Uh, well, that's, people that's have really different uh, orientations toward the concept of planning and strategic planning. Mm -hmm. And sure. I'm really a curmudgeon, sort of a Luddite mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to these things. And I was in a training course at one point for deputy chief submissions, so people going out in these much more serious senior positions. And we had a guy come in from budget to talk about strategic planning and plans and he started out by saying, you wouldn't want to live your life without a plan. You know, you don't even know where you're going to be in a year and in five years and in 20 years. And, you know, being the smart aleck that I am, I said just audibly enough that everybody around me could hear. It's like, I don't even know where I want to go to lunch. You know, so, you know, just, so yeah. people, people are different. Some people love plans, but. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, guess. you're speaking my language here. I I am much more on that side of things. And I, I remember having reflections when I was uh, in undergraduate at Colorado State University and I was like, studying natural resource recreation and tourism. Uh, I kind of found this pathway to do like study abroad and international internships. And like I was able to just keep getting myself overseas uh, through that program. And I remember uh, sitting uh, in a, at a wildlife refuge in Costa Rica in the jungle uh, as part of like an internship that I found uh, myself, I kind of weaseled my way in there. And I remember sitting there thinking like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I'm going to love it. I know I'm going to be really happy and I know I'm going to be really good at it. And it was one of those things that like, it's so hard to know what that thing is going to be. And I would have never guessed I'd be working in like online education like I am right now. Um, but the trajectory is is so important. And I think that making sure that you're kind of taking stock along the way. You're not necessarily sprinting in one direction uh, because you're going to miss everything else that, 
that you have the opportunity to kind of take a left turn or a right turn, right? And uh, it sounds like you were able to do that even within uh, a single organization with um, probably like somewhat clear paths to kind of continue to progress. Um, I had that so I, many that questions. I liked, actually, <laughs> that I could yeah. see where the paths were, what the possibilities right, were. Right. And um, that I liked. I don't, you know, I think academia is a little bit different that way where the paths get pretty fuzzy. Um, but I did like to know, okay, well, this is kind of how it goes. And they would tell you, you know, up front that, well, you've got, I can't remember what it is, 15 or 20 years to make it from your entry level foreign service yeah. up to the threshold of the senior foreign service, which is a different thing. And if you don't make it in that 20 years, you're out. And, you know, people hit that cap and had to leave. I got there and got into the senior foreign service, and that has a cap too. So after 10 years in the senior foreign service, I knew this is the end of the line. You know, by September of 2008, whether I want to be or not, I'm out. But I knew all that stuff. And I, I just kind of liked. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you enough to kind of work, work towards without being too prescriptive of what your future holds. Right. Like you've got you've got some pathways. Um, I would love to know, like, what is what is one of the biggest challenges that you faced while you were in the Foreign Service? It wasn't the moving. Uh, fortunately for me, my family was very enthusiastic about the lifestyle. And like me, they tended to be looking forward to our next assignment. Um, and, you know, the kids, depending on where we were and what the situation had been there, could feel the pulling away from their friends and having to make new friends and all of that. But still, overall, we were really a foreign service family. Um, so it wasn't the moving. Um, and it wasn't, unlike Peace Corps, where maybe one of the biggest challenges is trying to find work, trying to find something meaningful to do and fit in. In, in the Foreign Service, it was almost the opposite. There was always too much work. Right. And so you had to make certain decisions. Uh, I worked hard. If I saw work or if I saw a problem that needed to be dealt with, I couldn't, couldn't put the rock back down. You know, I had, I had to do it. And in that regard, probably I let it get out of hand. You know, it just became too much of a workaholic, kind of looking back on it. But I'm not sure that was ever an alternative based on my personality. One of the bigger problems that a lot of people have, I didn't have it so much, is the State Department's a bureaucracy. I mean, it is right. a bureaucracy. It's a government agency. And it's a hierarchy and a lot of people think they can't work under those circumstances, and maybe they can't, so they shouldn't. But that didn't bother me so much. But if you're a diplomat for the U.S. government, you can't make it up as you go along, foreign policy. The president yeah. is going to have a foreign policy, and right. that will have various corollaries and play out in different parts of the world differently. But you don't have the opportunity to say, well, that's nonsense. I don't believe this. I'm not going to do that. You can't do that. That's not right. in your purview. And so it can be tricky if you end up somewhere 
where you've got to uh, be an advocate, defend and be an advocate for uh, a policy that you disagree with. And um, you have a couple of options. One is like, don't end up in that part of the world where they're having that problem or in the, you know, don't end up in that place so you don't have to defend it as much. So in Africa, frankly, there was a lot that was going on in the world that they didn't care much about. And I was, I thought going into Iraq was a horrible idea, and I still do. But the Africans, the people in Togo, they weren't interested in that at all. They were interested in their own authoritarian governments and how they were going to put food on their table and send their yeah. kids to school yeah. and all that. So I was what I call out of the line of fire. But if you're in the line of fire or you can't ignore it uh, and it's really a moral dilemma for you, sometimes you just say, I've got to resign. And you'll see it. It'll be in the papers and some someone's resigned because they can't work uh, either on that policy or for an administration that's, that's pushed that policy. Um, so that can be difficult. Unfortunately for me, I... I was kind of pretty good at staying out of the line of fire if I could. Yeah. Um, That's really interesting. And the other, you know, another one could be, but fortunately for me, I never experienced it. And this could be true uh, in an American organization. If there are people near or senior to you who are engaged in uh, inappropriate or immoral activities or embezzlement or sexual harassment or whatever, yeah. What are yeah. you going to do about it? Are you going to sit on your hands and be quiet? Are you going to say something? How do you say something? Uh, that that can be a problem. But when I look at my career, I have to say, man, I was I was pretty lucky. I I didn't have to deal with either of those problems. They never really looked me in the face. So right, it, it would be difficult. Yeah. No, that's that's incredible. And like, there's definitely a lot of nuance in there. So thanks for unpacking that for us. Um, one of the other areas that I know we've talked about before, uh, and I already know the answer to this question, but um, you've, you've had to have met some really interesting people on, along the way. Like, who, who have you been able to meet through these, these positions? Um, the more senior I was at the embassy, of course, the more senior people I'd be able to meet. So when I was in South Africa, I was the consul general in Johannesburg, so that was the head of that post. I got to see uh, Nelson Mandela several times speaking and whatever. I got to meet a whole bunch of people from the anti-apartheid movement. A lot of the people who were locked up with him on Robben Island. Uh, his political mentor was Walter Sisulu, uh, who had been to dinner and reception at, at my house. Um, Helen Sussman was an interesting uh, um, Jewish South African, the Jewish South Africans were very prominent and important in the anti-apartheid role. She was probably the most uh, known and she befriended us, you know, she'd invite us to dinner and we'd invite her to dinner and we'd have a, and she was a real character, but she was a real, really nice lady, but she befriended us. So that was kind of cool. Uh, and then it's amazing. later in my assignment just before I was ready to leave and Nelson Mandela's term was over, 
I got to sit with him at a table at a at a banquet in his honor. And I mean, he was two chairs away from me. And it was the only time my whole life I've literally pinched myself to see if I was really there. It was pretty amazing to be sitting there with Nelson Mandela. So that, and then in other countries, you know, presidents, uh, there was a time when I was a regional director in the Bureau of African Affairs. And when I'd go overseas to post, I'd meet with presidents. So, you know, meet a lot of characters that way. Right. Of course, as the ambassador in Togo, I met with the president fairly frequently, and he was the longest serving leader in Africa when I got right. there. And that's usually not by popular acclaim. <laughs> and uh, he was he was kind of an interesting guy who wore sunglasses all the time. And uh, you would go over there for a meeting at eight in the morning and they would serve you champagne, good French champagne. The label had his picture on it. I've still got wow. a bottle of that. But the funniest meeting I had in all my foreign service career, maybe my whole life, was I went to see the president on a particular topic I asked to see him. And it was one of his favorite topics. And so I went in there and I said this, we did this, and this is what we'd like you to do. Well, he launched into, very predictably, launched into a 30-minute uh, lecture, whatever you want to call it, on how he was right in the core of establishing this organization that I wanted to talk to him about. And so he goes through that. And then he finishes and he says, now, Mr. Ambassador, what, you know, what do you want to say, basically? This was all in French. And so I started my talk, whatever I wanted to say to him. And I noticed that after three or four or five minutes, he wasn't moving. And he wasn't really not moving. His head was going like down, down, down. And I realized, oh my God, he's asleep. And I'm talking to someone who's asleep here. And the prime minister was in the meeting and he's kind of looking nervous. And there was a translator. So I talked for about 10 minutes and said what I wanted to say. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? You know, because I'm going to finish what I want to say. And he's still going to be asleep. And so whatever i got as far and i said and mr president that's what i've come to discuss with you and then he's still asleep and the prime minister's looking very nervous and he's reaching over you know mon general, mon general. and he's like shakes yeah. his leg and the translators look even, even more awkward and <laughs> aya david just kind of lunges up like this and looks around looks at me across the room and he says now mr ambassador tell me what you've come for and that was that was interesting. That's unbelievable. Did he have like too many bottles of his own champagne or something? Like, Apparently he didn't drink in the morning, his right? own champagne. He drank large glasses of whiskey. Oh. So, and died of an alcohol-related illness oh. while I was there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. That's, that's quite a story. Um, and that's just amazing that you've been able to interface with so many people and like Nelson Mandela, like that's that's just an absolute global legend in so many ways. And the fact that you were a couple couple chairs down from him is is really amazing. Um, I know that you actually wrote a song uh, about Nelson Mandela. I did. Um, I don't know if you want to treat us to a little bit of that song and we can talk <laughs> about it. Um, 
Hopefully you can put a snippet of it on from my uh, album. Uh, but the song is just, it's not really a chronology of his life, but it, it's, it's kind of that way. But really after the first verse, it just talks about the various elements of apartheid and how he was uh, involved in trying to end apartheid and what was important to him. And then as he came out of prison and then there was a whole reconciliation uh, effort that he led. And so it was more philosophical. And I've, I was comfortable with the way that, that it turned out because I think it's a good description of his importance to the world, to the world. I mean, he's held up a lot of times and it's changes of, you know, from authoritarian governments to democratically elected governments, whatever it is, he's held up as saying, hey, they don't, you know, you don't go chasing after your former adversaries. You really need to find a way to work with them because if you don't, you're just right around the wheel. You know, this thing's going to go around again. And I think that was the power of Nelson Mandela. And I hope that I um, conveyed some of that in the song. Yeah, well, I will certainly play some for everybody. Sky the home of his class. How could a bus so humble yield such a giant of a man? Born into a country where people of his color had no choice, they suffered grave indignities. He struggled long to bring to them. Nelson, Nelson, tell us true How well have we learned your lesson There's so much more we must do So I wanted to shift a little bit and uh, talk about kind of post-foreign service uh, you transitioned uh, another boomerang of sorts back into academia. Um, I know that you, you know you got over to, to University of Madison, Wisconsin. You started a PhD. Obviously, you took a different path, uh, but you did eventually end up uh, in academia. So, what was that process like? Why why did you come back? And I know you were a, a diplomat in residence, but what did that what did that mean? Well. And this is true of a lot of transfers. I don't want to make it sound at all like selfless service. I was in Baghdad. I knew I was going to be there for a year. I knew that that was 2005, 2006. I knew that by September of 2008, I was out. I was going to hit that point in my career. I was fine with that. And I 
but a lot of people had recommended Austin, Texas uh, to me and to my wife, Maureen, as a place that we might really like uh, because the music scene is incredible and it's this, the, the, the politics of Austin we were comfortable with. Um, and so we came down here and we looked at one point, we bought a house before, you know, we just bought a house and then went back to Togo. And with the thought that we would come here and try to retire here, but then I had the opportunity through the Foreign Service because we had a position of diplomat in residence here mm -hmm. to get the position. And that was kind of my bargaining chip when they wanted me to go to Baghdad. I said, I'll go to Baghdad, but when I come out, you're going to send me to Austin, Texas as the diplomat in residence because then we'd be in Austin, right? And, uh, and that's what they did. It just worked out incredibly well. And so it put me back in academia in a graduate school, the LBJ School of Public Affairs. It was exciting. I liked it. I, I had wonderful colleagues. They were doing interesting things. I got to teach a course on diplomacy. I had never taught before. I always thought I wouldn't like to teach, and then I found out it was really great to teach. Um, so, so I liked it, but I also realized in short order, I was like, thank God I didn't do this for a career. Like, thank God I didn't like go ahead and get my PhD and do this because it's, it's a very confusing world. Um, and I never, to, to this day, I don't quite understand it, but, um, just a very different world. So when I tell my colleagues, they'd say, wait a minute, you would write cables and messages and papers from the Foreign Service and your name wouldn't be on it? No, not publicly, not that anyone would see. If you wrote a cable, the ambassador's name was on the cable, right. on all the cables. And they were, we couldn't deal with that. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't stand that. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the way it is. Yeah. And just seeing the difference in... Um, Standards, even ethical standards, as to what they could do with their chair money or their grant money or whatever it is they got. Right. And if you did that, you know, in the federal government, you'd be kicked out, basically. Right. Uh, you know, and mind you, it wasn't like really moral stuff. It's just that right. there were very strict rules in the federal government about what you could do and not do and all of that. Mm -hmm. And they didn't exist in academia and I didn't mind the fact that the schedule and people's daily activities were vague. That was fine. I could deal with that. But just getting from point A to point B in the State Department relative to getting or in comparison to getting from point A to point B in academia is very different. I mean, in academia, they wouldn't even agree at what point A and point B were. And, you know, it's a philosophical they, discussion. A lot of them didn't play well in the sandbox, which yeah. surprised me. Yeah, but uh, but it was interesting, and I respected them for what they do. But I was glad that I hadn't pursued that particular path. Yeah, I think that that highlights the benefit of having somebody like you come in to be a diplomat in, in residence and to have students learn directly from you. Like I, I had the, the opportunity to take a couple of courses from similar folks in, in the Ford School of Public Policy. And it's just a different type of learning experience, right? And I, I think you're right. Like higher ed is is fraught with a lot of 
over politics and a lot of kind of positioning and things that ultimately impact the students in in interesting ways. Um, I, I think the culture, like you said, is it's it's very different. Um, and you know, I I definitely commend you for taking that leap and continuing to like want to share and to to help others grow. And I'm sure you inspired people to kind of follow your footsteps post graduate school, uh, maybe not in the PhD route, but maybe in the foreign service route. I've had several students who got into the foreign service and that's always a joy for me. And they stay in touch with me. It's really cool. And I'm proud of them. It's great. So, so after you did that, you decided to, uh, go back to work for the Peace Corps. Can you tell me about your decision? Like why, why did you want to go back and uh, jump in as a country director? I had heard years ago, and I think it was true when I was in the Peace Corps in Korea, that the Peace Corps country director positions were politically appointed. As it turns out, that was only a very short period of time that that was true. So I'd never really thought about it. And then as it happened, a good friend of mine from my service in South Africa became the Peace Corps director and the whole Peace Corps in Washington. And we invited him out to the LBJ school for a day and we went through a program and all that. He's a great guy. And he disabused me of the idea that the country director positions were political appointments anymore. And that year was the 50th anniversary of the Peace Corps. And I was asked, by our local association of former Peace Corps volunteers, if I would take a song that I wrote called A Simple Prayer and make sort of a music video uh, photo montage of of Peace Corps volunteers along the 50 years and in all the different places in the world. And so I gathered up the photos and I learned how to use iMovie and... I'm making this video and I'm seeing these photos of Peace Corps volunteers across all these years of service all over the world. And honest to God, I tear up a lot. Uh, And I thought, gosh, maybe we should go back into the Peace Corps. And I wasn't even thinking of staff position. Maybe we should just go back into the Peace Corps. And then I thought, well, hold on, you know. Maybe I could go back as a country director. And then I made inquiries and went through that process and did eventually get hired. But see, that's another thing that that was nowhere in my planning. That was nowhere in my planning. If I hadn't done that video, I probably never would have done that. That is that is an incredible story. I had no idea that that that's what led you to think about that even as an option. It's It's powerful. That's very cool. And I like seeing like viscerally seeing all of the volunteers doing doing the work that they were doing um it hits you like it really hits you and i think like so for me after i served in ethiopia i came back to the university of michigan and i worked in the uh peace corps office there as a recruiter for a year and a half while i was in grad school and i i had the opportunity to uh be in that position during the uh the, the next the next round of things so the 55th anniversary of the Peace Corps um, had, had an opportunity to meet Carrie Hessler Redelet and um, have a big celebration on the steps of the Union where JFK gave his speech 
uh, kind of when he was out on the campaign trail and announced Peace Corps for the first time. And in that process leading up to all of those events, um, we did similar things. Like we, we put together a lot of resources and told a lot of stories from Michigan alum that went on to join the Peace Corps. And we even had a few of those students that were present during that speech in 1961, um, like right, right before that, that shift. And like having those students that were literally standing there listening but then they were also the same students that chased JFK down at the airport and said, hey, that idea that you said, that idea you mentioned, like, we want to do it. Uh, and just like there's something really, really special about those types of reflections, I think, especially after you serve. Like Mary and I always joke that someday we will we will rejoin the Peace Corps. Like I think it's something that's inevitable. Right. I, I met a couple. I think they were in Togo. They joined the Peace Corps. Every decade for four decades. Wow, that's that was amazing. Really crazy. That was really uh, anyway. But uh, that's cool. Well, my thought was, if it sounds reasonable to do, to play the song over which I made the photo montage. And the reason the the reason I made it over this song is I wrote this song for my adult children. They were just getting into their careers, and I was thinking about what they were doing. So I wrote it for that. And then when I wrote it, it occurred to me, this is a very Peace Corps song, you know, in terms of mission yeah. and everything. And then the more, as it turns out now over the years, I've done, I've taken that song to do about four or five other uh, videos. They're all on, on YouTube. And I'm doing one right now for a, for a nonprofit here in Austin. But anyway, I wrote the song and the more I thought about the song, I realized it really summarizes, frames very well uh, my philosophy of life. You know, where, yeah. where you know, I think I should take my life or, or whatever, what I would hope other people would do. So if you think it's okay, I'll play it for you. I would be honored. I'm not on a great setup uh, in terms of audio, so I'll do the best I can do. I think uh, I think our listeners will will forgive you a little bit, and I will I will be sure to make sure everyone has links to the other versions. Yeah, like I said, the the ones that are the, the videos on YouTube are some of my favorite because they drive up. We had a video of uh, the volunteers in Ethiopia. One's just Ethiopia. And then the Peace Corps asked me to do one of the volunteers in Africa. And then Carrie Hesler-Rodl, the director, asked me if I'd do one for all of Peace Corps. And then her public relations people said, we don't want to do that. <laughs> said, hey. Oh, my children, Lindley, sit right down. Next to me here, it's not a story I would share. It's just this, a simple prayer. To you I pray with all my soul, a joyful life that you grow old. But to this there's one thing more, leave this place better than before.
in the face of bigotry from those who claim monopoly on a blind morality shiny light that they may see and to those who think that might makes a country just and right tell them countries big and small can be great or they can fall Plan ahead, children do not. Modern prophets hawking greed. Who damn prudence as a vice then leaves all pay the price. And for the homeless, sick and poor, say a prayer, you'll do much more. Surely we cannot succeed. With so many and so much need Mother Earth, she sheds a tear Raped and ravaged all these years It's not too late to spare her doom Make her well to hear her woes Finally this, I tell you true, what will be, it's up to you. Don't entrust your life to fade, take the reins, don't hesitate. I'm no poet, no philosopher, just someone with a simple prayer. My children, someday for yours, full of hope that you'll endure. Finally, bring an end to war. Feed the hungry, raise the poor, save the earth from what's in store. Give the fearful something more. Leave this place better than before. That was simply, simply beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us uh, well, over and over again. That. I was I get some latency in this connection, and so I was singing back to myself about half a second after, and I realized the guy singing back was was not singing the right words all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's fine. So yeah, it's, thank you for letting me play yeah. that. I just. You know, I said my philosophy is in there. Basically, we can all work on a whole bunch of different things. We can work in a whole bunch of different careers and sectors and all of that. And, you know, people can make value judgments or moral judgments about what's more valuable or less valuable or whatever. But in the end, for me, is are you trying to make the world a better place? Yeah. Are you trying to leave this place better than you found it? You can do that in all sorts of ways, uh, but it's important 
that 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 be your objective i love it and there's just there's so much wrapped up into that song and i think it's definitely one of those songs even for me personally that it evolves right it's kind of like this this open cup you can just keep pouring more and more into it and you know i've i've heard i heard it a while ago i heard it when i was living in ethiopia and it it definitely resonated then um obviously for you it's it's probably evolved as well you've you've probably played it for many many people you've done a lot mm-hmm. of those videos uh you've touched a lot of lives with it and i think that music has such an incredible uh, ability to kind of penetrate deep and to continue to evolve right like it it brings you back like that actually brought me back to ethiopia like i was really uh thinking about it and and i remember some of those videos as well that i saw with the song and it all kind of meshes together but uh this is again a a new chapter um so it's yeah it's very cool thank you so much for sharing that music is really it's amazing because every every culture that i know of has music and it serves different purposes in different countries and a lot of time that's their oral history or that's their it's their newspaper sometimes uh, or it's their consciousness Uh, and it's amazing to look at all these different cultures and how they use music but also how important music is to the people in the country whether it's to sing or to play or somehow Mm -hmm. to be involved in that so uh I, you know, people talk about music and how do you write what I, you know, why do you do it? And songwriters will say, you know, why do you breathe? You know, if you can do it, if you do it, it comes out of you. It's not why, you know, it might be how, I don't know, but uh, it's that. And the other thing is, it's the most international language. Mm -hmm. It's the most international language. So a friend of mine uh, and I, it's sent all over the world by the State Department to play yep. music in different places on, on an exchange program. And what a, um, what a treat! What a what a uh, an advantage that is to go and meet people to play for them, to play for kids, and sometimes to do music workshops, songwriting workshops for kids yeah. and orphans. Uh, it's a real honor. We can't, we can't believe it. And then we meet musicians from other countries and play along with them. Uh, and it just creates bonds, uh, whether we speak the same language or not, or we have the same cultural experiences, it creates these fantastic bonds. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the art forms that just has that, again, has that ability to just transcend a lot of things that uh just normal conversation and and just any any other form of interaction may not be able to transcend and i i think of many times in my life even in in ethiopia one of my main projects that i worked on was an educational music video project with a bunch of kids singing songs about you know uh, issues in the community for other kids and you know music really just has that ability to share messages in a way that, uh, you know, just having a conversation, writing a letter, writing a note, giving a speech just doesn't quite get you there. Right. 
Oh, for sure. As participatory. I mean, yeah. they can they can join in. Um, I spent a lot of years in Africa, most of my foreign service career, and love African music. I mean, just, African music is so fantastic, and there are relatively few people in the United States who are even aware of it. But and it varies quite a bit across the continent. But the West African uh, West African music is really good. They're fantastic on instruments and unique things that you've never heard of and beautiful and a lot of fusion, fantastic. But the the most remarkable vocal harmonies in the world are are in Southern Africa. I mean, you hear their harmonies, you just can't believe it. They're so powerful. They kind of go through you. So that's that's been a real treat too. And of course, in Ethiopia, you get the music and you get some of the most amazing dancing you've ever seen. It's amazing. I, it makes me think of uh, Graceland, <laughs> Paul Simon's. Oh, exactly. You know, With like Lady Smith Black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of harmonies I'm talking about. We had the great uh, privilege uh, of doing one of these music tours down in Lesotho. Yeah. And one of their best known choirs of about 20 people, we were doing the music for the ambassador's July 4th reception, which is kind of the big thing yeah. that an embassy does in the year. And they were singing along like the song Nelson and a few others. Yeah. I wrote a song called Lady Africa. They were singing the chorus with us in those beautiful harmonies. It just, it's like, wow, it doesn't get any better than this. And a couple of years before, before we went down or out to Ethiopia, our first gig was in Swaziland. And we were trying to work with the embassy to get this children's choir at this orphanage to sing the choruses of these two songs. Right. And the friend that I travel with is the producer of my album. He's really well known in Austin, an incredible musician. Um, and he was worried, how are we going to do this? Uh, and we had sent them the CD in advance and said, we just want you to do the chorus in these two songs. And he fretted about it until we got there. So we only have an hour to train them. This is not going to work. We were performing at the biggest music festival in Southern Africa. That's what these kids were going to join us for. And we went up to the orphanage. And as we neared their music classroom, I guess, we heard the song and we heard them singing the harmony to it perfectly in those sort of Ladysmith, Blackman, Buzzfeed. And we both just looked at each other and we just kind of teared up. It's like, oh my God, you know, Stephen, you can't teach him any better than that. That's, That's as, as good as it gets. But that was a, an incredible experience. Yeah, the other thing is, amazing. and you had mentioned it with the song about Nelson Mandela, is a lot of songwriters, and I think a lot of authentic songwriters, they draw from their experience, what they feel and what they know and all of that. And my experience has been in Africa, it's been in foreign affairs, it's been in the, the things that I've uh, gotten to witness and participate in during that time. And so that 
comes out very uh, heavily in the song. On my CD has 10 songs. One of them is about Nelson Mandela. Oddly enough, one of them is about African dictators. It's called <laughs> Absolute Power. One of yeah. them is about African markets, called Market Day Africa. Yeah. And then one is a broad um, song about Africa called Lady Africa, where Lady Africa is this lover that I keep trying to leave, but I keep coming <laughs> back. So, yep. uh, so that it that experience infuses itself into into uh, the music. What I love about all of that too is. You know, I'll I'll link uh, your your songs in the show notes so people can kind of poke through your albums and and check it out. And what I really love about your style of music in particular is that you're telling stories that are so incredibly meaningful to you. Of course, they evolve over time. Once you do that, once you kind of record those stories, you put them out there to the world, then people get to take that and make it into something for themselves, right? And you kind of you let go of that part of that song. You're always going to have like the origin story of it. It's going to evolve for you, but it's really amazing to be able to put it out there and and share it with other people because then they get a build on it and just have that, that experience for themselves. Right. Sure. I mean, we all have favorite songs and groups, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I love Leonard Cohen, love Leonard Cohen. And, <laughs> you know, he asked me, what's that song about? You know? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, or, or this is what <laughs> yeah, it means yeah. to me, or this yeah. is when I heard it and all of that. Yeah. yeah. And that that's your point. It's like, I throw the song out there and probably the greatest um, reward uh, that I get is if someone comes up to me and says, wow, that song really moved me. It really resonated you know, and sometimes they'll say, oh, is this what the song meant? And I was like, well, what did it mean to you? Well, that's what it meant. I said, that's what it meant. And that's you what know? it meant. Yeah, go, yeah. go with it. But uh, it's, a, it's an amazing process to be, to be involved with. And it is, it's just you, you put it out there. Someone once asked, in fact, one of his backup singers said, what's, what's this song about? And he said, sex. They're all about sex. <laughs> just, Every single one of them. Huh? <laughs> Every single one of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. If you listen, it's there. So, you know, I, I would be remiss if, if uh, you and I were, were chatting and we didn't mention the, the conflict that is happening in northern Ethiopia and the Tigray region in which I lived uh, for a couple of years. And I'd love to just get your perspectives on, you know, when something like this happens to uh, a country and, and to your friends and, and your family that you've lived in for so long, you've invested so much of yourself into it. Um, you know, what, what advice did you have for us that are trying to figure out ways in which we can affect positive change back into the, our, our second or third homes? To the extent that you can is to try to stay in touch with those people, be there for them. And, you know, they're going to be there for you too. So you can find out what's really going on. You can find out what their needs are. You can offer them sort of moral support and just an awareness that you're interested because I think that's something really important that they know this is not something that's just happening in Tigray and the rest of the world doesn't know what's going on, right. although that's probably largely true. Um, I would say then to take that knowledge and get it out there. 
And whether that means banging on the doors of your congressman or whatever it is, uh, make that, you know, make it your goal here to spread that awareness. It could be talking to rotary clubs or it could be talking to churches or whatever it is. Spread the information. Here's what it is. Here's what I experienced. Here's what my friends are going through. And on some levels, I would say generally speaking, stay out of the politics. Stay out of the politics and more into the experience, the human experiences. Because when the news media covers it, they're going to cover the politics. Right. And they're going to miss the human experiences. So I would take those human experiences and, and get them out there. That's what, what I would suggest. It's also heartbreaking to see because I've watched Ethiopia since 1988. And when I got to Ethiopia, the, uh, the country was still under something called the Derg, which was a council of Marxists. And brutal Marxists, there were terrible things that happened. And the Ethiopian people were frightened and closed and uh, really suffering. And the economy was suffering. And then that passed and there was significant economic development. They were still under single party, single individual rule. But when I got back, I had this sense that they were much happier and much better off than they were however many, 25, 30 years ago when I'd seen them at the last. Yeah. And Ethiopia had a fantastic economic growth rate, over, over 10%, so two-digit economic growth rate for year after year. Mm-hmm. And to have a crisis like this, where they don't really have any margin, uh, it's going, to, it's going to slow down their growth. It's going to force them to deal with problems they wouldn't otherwise had to deal with. Yeah. And it's going to slow down their development. It's also going to destabilize the area. It's going to destabilize the second largest country in Africa. The Eritreans have already come in and they've already fought one, well, more than one war with Eritrea. Um, it's going to destabilize the area. And so the implications of what's going on in, in Tigray are going to go well beyond the borders of Tigray. Um, and you, know, you hope people realize that. I know there are people in the State Department who do realize that. Uh, I don't think this thing's got much attention. Uh, other stuff's going on. A lot of stuff in Africa doesn't get much attention. But the other day I was reading about uh, Al-Sisi in uh, Egypt, the president of Egypt, saying, you know, the Nile water, don't touch it. And there's been this yeah, whole business about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And, you know, he's implying that they'll go in there if, if the Ethiopians start filling the dam and taking their water. And I, Boy, that's just what the, that section of Africa needs. You know, like, yeah. let's yeah. really stir it up. Yeah. We'll see. Hopefully yeah. that doesn't happen. Yeah, and I... I think those are really wise words of kind of, you know, for us reaching out to our direct contacts as we can, as it's safe, as we can protect them and offering them that support and being in touch with them is, 
you know, friends and trying to pay attention to what's going on at the higher level and, and staying updated and doing what we can to let our representatives know and uh, Secretary of State Blinken and, and others that are, that are, you know, they have more leverage, obviously, than a, a single return Peace Corps volunteer. Um, and I, I definitely think of, you know, like time scale is always a thing here. And, and we all are, Peace Corps volunteers are doers, right? Like we're all so action oriented and we want to go in and we want to organize uh, a food delivery or we want to like ship out a bunch of stuff or we want to donate money or we want to organize like a huge fundraiser. Like we're all really active and trying to figure out the ways in which we can, we can help. But I think there's also like the other part of us that, that needs to just understand that we need to be able to assess risk. And, and again, like you said, there's folks in the state department and otherwise that are on the ground thinking about these details and know a lot more than we do. So I think that that, that brings me always back to just being really grounded with who we're talking to and, and who we're supporting. And it's really those, the, you know, the goals two and three of the Peace Corps is that, that cross-cultural uh, development and, and really building those relationships and maintaining them. And I think this is, you know, an opportunity to, to double down on those goals. Right. Well, I didn't think about it until I actually said it was just really try to move around your communities uh, in the States. I don't know how St. Martin is concerned about this, but I mean, the volunteers move around your community and talk to people and, you know, all these organizations and people who cared, kids at school, high schools, whatever, universities. And if you if you stay on your experiences and your relations, they can't knock you off center. You know, it's like the State Department. Basically, they're going to feel, hey, that's fine. We get it. People are suffering and we're trying to manage this policy. And there's not a big place for you in that. I, mean, I hate to say that, but I mean, that's kind of the way it works. Just like the military wouldn't say, hey, Benjamin, you know, come over and tell us how to, you know, how to intervene here. Uh, so if you stay on what you know, uh, you're on solid ground. You're not stepping on someone else's ground or whatever. It's not to say you shouldn't try to influence. I'm just saying you'll probably get a better reception and be able to contribute more positively if you kind of stay with what you know. So, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm again, like you have just so much to offer everyone. I do want to ask one last question, which is, you know, what advice would you have for somebody that's listening right now that's considering either a career in the foreign service or potentially a career as a musician, or maybe they're just on the edge of, of kind of taking their own, their own risk, whatever that means to them. Maybe it's something like the Peace Corps. Maybe it's something completely different. What, what kind of advice would you have for them? I guess, you know, first and foremost, if you've got something you want to do, do it. And a lot of people, students and others that I work with said, oh, I'd love to be in the Foreign Service, but it's so competitive, so I'm not going to take the written test. I'm like, come on, you know, 200 people a year get in. Forget the fact that 20,000 people take the written test. Some people pass. I pass. People get in. Take it. Test is free. Take it. Go after it. Um, 
and we all can't run after everything that we might want to, you know, but really give it thought and don't tell yourself you can't do something until you try to do it. Uh, that's one. And the other one I mentioned earlier in our conversation is don't be unidimensional. You know, don't say, I've got this work. I'm a, you know, a biomedical specialist and, you know, expert. And I study, study, study. And other than that, you know, I've got my family, but I don't, you know, I don't have any other passions or things that I do. And I always feel like, you know, be multidimensional, have multiple interests because your life's going to change and you might not always be able to pursue that one, that one thing. I had, I had a, an ambassador retiring who was really scared of the concept of retiring, didn't know what he was going to do, thought he was going to be bored. And at the time I thought, man, like there's no way I can be bored, yeah. but I can, you know, I don't know what would happen, but, uh, <laughs> I'm never bored. And I think part of that is because I've got my music. I love to read Charles Dickens. I, I'm an enthusiast for movies and, and love to hike in the Rockies and you know, have those things, have those things because they also help you keep perspective when you're going through your career, you right. know, whether they're busy times or tough times or good times or whatever, those other things kind of help you keep that on track. And so those are sort of my odd lessons learned or recommendations. I love it. Very wise words from Ambassador Greg Ingle. Thank you so much. I appreciate you jumping on the show. It's been a great uh, pleasure to be able to talk to you again. Uh, I wish that we could do all of this in person, you know, in a room where we could mix and ask questions and all of that. I love it. I miss it. Uh, I pray that uh, not too far into the future we'll be able to start doing that again. Uh, it's wonderful that we have things like Zoom and podcasts. That's great. Um, but the real thing is still better. I totally agree. And, and listen, I'll, I'll come down to Austin. We'll hang out. I'll bring the boys. They can play with their grandson. And we'll, we'll make a whole thing of it. <laughs> well, there you have it, my conversation with Greg. And I can say, again, this was such a transformative conversation in many ways. Uh, it really is a true honor to be able to hear Greg's stories and uh, kind of hear him chart his path, both as a a foreign service officer, uh, also going through the Peace Corps, but then really uh, embodying the multifaceted, multidimensional uh, characteristics that he speaks so highly of within the way that he lives his life. I am just so honored to have been able to host him in this conversation. Greg, thank you so much for jumping on. Uh, it was really, really a good conversation. And above all, such an awesome musical treat right there in the middle. Um, really, uh, Greg, thank you. If you want to get in touch with Greg, uh, I will link his website uh, in the show notes, uh, along with some of the other videos that we talked about with the song A Simple Prayer, so you can go through and check those out. 
Uh, Greg has a Wikipedia page, which is fun to poke around and just see uh, in full technicolor detail all of the things that he has been able to accomplish uh, professionally and personally throughout his life. And the last thing that I will leave you with, uh, other than, of course, the uh, obligatory ask to subscribe to the podcast, uh, I will leave you with the full version studio recorded from the 2010 debut album take it personally the song that he played for us live a simple prayer i hope all of you enjoyed this conversation and take a couple minutes to really listen through this studio version because it is fantastic all right i will see you next time My children, lend an ear Sit right down next to me here It's not a story I would share It's just this simple prayer For you I pray with all my soul A joyful life that you grow old But to this there's one thing more Leave this place better than before And in the face of bigotry From those who claim monopoly On a blind morality Shine a light that they may see And to those who think that might Makes a country just and right Tell them countries, big and small Can be great, but they can fall Plan ahead, children do not heed Modern prophets Hawking green, who damn prudence as a vice, then leave us all to pay the price. For the homeless, sick and poor, say a prayer, but do much more. Surely we cannot succeed with so many in so much need. Mother Earth, she sheds a tear Raped and ravaged all these years It's not too late to spare her doom Make her well to heal her wounds And finally this, I'll tell you true What will be is up to you Don't entrust your life to fate Take the reins, don't hesitate
philosopher, just someone with a simple prayer. For you, my children, someday for yours, full of hope that you'll endure, finally bring it out to war. Feed the hungry, raise the poor, save the earth from what's in store. Give the fearful something more and leave this place better than before.